0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated by my dear friend and longtime friend of the podcast, David Borowski, in honor of Sean Hiller, also a dear friend, on the occasion of his recent engagement to Shira Berman. What a wonderful celebration. Hardy Mazel Tov from the entire Parsha podcast family. May they merit to build a beautiful life together and establish a wonderful, beautiful Jewish home together, a home that brings joy and delight to their family, to the community, to the entire nation, and of course, to the Almighty in heaven. Parsha's Baha'u'llah is an incredibly rich Parsha. It's a dynamic Parsha. And this is a transitional Parsha because the nation is on the move. For the first time in about a year, the nation is mobile they are leaving sinai they've been there for nearly a year they arrived at sinai in chapter 1819 of of exodus a lot happened over the course of this year they're eating manna which descends from heaven every day twice on friday or the volume of two days on friday and they're drinking water that's emitted to them from a well which is inside a stone and, of course, they've had many memorable experiences. The sign of Revelation, Moshe goes up to heaven for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water or sleep. And he does that three times. And he comes back the, with the first set of tablets, and the nation is doing the the golden calf, so he shatters that. And God wants to destroy the Jewish people, and eventually God relents and forgives the Jewish people. And Moshe goes up and gets the second set of tablets, and then they build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is established. Effectively, half of Exodus and the whole Leviticus and the first couple of sections of Numbers have all been in the same location at Mount Sinai. And now the tabernacle has been established and the nation has been organized in precise encampments. There are groups of three tribes in all of the four directions to the east, you have Judah, Yisachar, and Zvulon. To the south, you have Reuven, Shimon, and Gad. To the west, you have Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And to the north, you have Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And then in the middle, you have the Levite camp. And the Levite camp is also precisely positioned in the east, near Judah, is Moshe and Aaron and his sons. In the south, near Reuben, is the family of Kehas, which includes, of course, Korach, We'll meet him in a few weeks. He's going to launch an insurrection against Moshe. And he's going to be joined with his neighbors from the tribe of Ruvain. To the west, you have the family of Gershon. To the north, you have the family of Merari. And in the epicenter of it all, you have the encampment of God, the tabernacle. And that too is precisely positioned. Everything is perfectly oriented as per the word of God. And when they encamped, they were laid out in this position, and so too when they traveled. Ka'asher yachanu ken so, They traveled in formation. And there's a very precise way that they decamped and dissembled the tabernacle and traveled. And if you piece it all together, this is what you discover. It started all with the cloud. They were enveloped really by seven different clouds, Rashi tells us. And the clouds folded up, it's time to move. Now, a lot of things have to happen in rapid succession. This is like the maneuvering of a great army. The cloud first folded up and covered the encampment of Judah. He would be the first to travel. Him together with his other bannersmen, Ysachar and Zevulun, And then we have the trumpets, the Kohanim, Blue, Moshe's two special trumpets, Atkiah, Atru, and Tkiah. And Moshe made the announcement of our Parsha, chapter 10, verse 35. And then the clouds began to travel. And then the first group, the first cohort of Judah, Yisachim, began to travel as well. And then Aaron and his sons entered the tabernacle and began the process of taking it apart. And they removed the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the sanctuary. And they covered the ark and the other vessels with the special covers that would sheath these vessels for the duration of the journey, they placed it upon poles. And then the Levites came in, and they dissembled the rest of the tabernacle, and they placed them upon the special wagons that the princes donated in last week's parsha, and they followed. And then for the second time, the Kaan blew Moshe's two special trumpets. And then Reuven, and God traveled, and then Kahas lifted the ark, and the other vessels that were covered and carried them on their shoulders. They cannot benefit from the wagons. They have to carry it manually. And then Kahas, the family of the Levites, Moshe and Aaron and sons traveled, and then the Qana blew the trumpets a third time, and Ephraim and co travelled, and then a fourth time, and Dan and Co travelled, a very precise manoeuvring of the camp, how it is assembled, how it is situated, how it is all laid out when they are when they are stationary, and what is the precise step by step protocol of them dissembling, cleaning up. Packing up and leaving. Very precise, very regimented. And this is all coming to play in our Parsha. The nation is going to move. And there are a flurry of things that happen in rapid fire succession in our Parsha, both prior to the nation's departure and after they travel and they encamp again, a lot of things happen. And that is what I want to focus on and this week's Parsha podcast. It's like a smorgasbord of interesting subjects. It's an amazing, packed Parsha. So many sumptuous subjects to tackle. We're going to focus on some of the events that surrounded the nation's maiden journey from Sinai. They've been there for almost a year, and now it's time to leave. Let's begin by looking at a very unusual feature that's found in our Parsha, of course, the Torah is written with letters, Hebrew letters, of course, the twenty two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's pretty uniform, you know it's it's black ink, a top, white parchment, broken out into paragraphs, and it's just the letters, but there are a few parts of a Torah scroll that are unique that are different, that are different than standard letters. So, for example, in 11 instances in the Torah, there are dots, not letters, dots, above or below the letters of a given verse. Every kosher Torah scroll has these. Another scribal oddity is the big and small letters. This is true not only in the Torah, Throughout the Tanakh, there are big and small letters. It's an interesting factoid. Every single one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet appear at least once, enlarged, a larger font, if you will, at least once in Tanakh. You have another oddity that we will read in a few weeks, Parshas Penchas, and that's the Vav Katiya, the cut-up Vav. There's a vav, which is one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the sixth letter. And there's just a white line of parchment intersecting this letter in the word shalom, the beginning of Parshas Pinchas. And that feature appears exactly once in the 304,805 letters in the Torah. Only once is there this feature of a letter that is deliberately cut up. Typically, if a letter is cut up, if part of the ink is missing, that Torah scroll is invalid. But here it's the opposite. If it's not cut up, then it's invalid. So, of course, every time we have this oddity in a Torah scroll, there's a reason for it. And it's part of the tradition going back to Moshe. And it has to be done like that. And it, of course, conveys a lot of ideas. Our... Parsha contains a scriptural oddity that appears only once in the Torah, really twice, but it's both in our Parsha. And that is the inverted, the backwards-facing nuns. What's a nun? A nun is a letter. It meets the N sound, as in Nancy and November. The N sound, N, nun. It corresponds to the number 50 in the Gematria system. In our Parsha, we have two verses that before the first verse and after the second verse, you have two standalone letters, the letter Nun, but facing the wrong direction, almost like a mirror image of what an ordinary Nun looks like. And again, these are not part of words, just standalone letters. And this in itself is completely unprecedented. You don't have random letters in the Torah. Every, every letter that appears in a Torah scroll is part of a word. So you have two letters that are not part of any words that when you read the Torah, you don't read them. That in itself is strange, but also it's a, not an ordinary letter. It's a, it's a backwards-facing one. Very, very strange. If you look at chapter 10, before verse 35 and after verse 36, you will see these upside-down nuns. And again, every Torah scroll has this feature. Why are there backwards-facing nuns in our Parsha? That question is asked by the Talmud. The Talmud in the book of Shabbos, and page 115b, going into 116a, says the Talmud, this section in the Torah, The Almighty, when he wrote the Torah scroll, and he instructed Moshe to to write it for us, he placed little signs above and below these verses. And why did he do that, says the Talmud? Talmud offers two, two reasons. Number one, to tell you that these verses are out of place. These verses are telling us what Moshe would say when the nation began to travel, and what Moshe would say when they encamped—two verses describing what Moshe would would recite, what he what he would say when the assembly happened and the nation began to travel, and at the end of the journey when they found the right spot, when the cloud descended on the right spot for their next place, the next juncture, the next station. Moshe would say the, the following verse. This, says the Talmud, doesn't really belong in our parsha. It really belongs in chapter two of the book of Numbers. Right now, we're in chapter ten of the book of Numbers. And these two verses, they're really out of place. It really should belong not in this parsha, Bahalosha, not in the last week's parsha, parsha not so. But two weeks ago, Parshas Bamidbar, chapter two of the book of Numbers, that's where it really belongs. When it talks about the the flags and the layout of the camps, that's where it should be. Okay, that's interesting. So why was it at a place? Why is it positioned over here? Why was that altered? Says the Talmud, why is it written over here? It's written to interject between two catastrophes, between two disasters. In our parsha, there are disasters that result in punishments. The first one is in chapter 10, verse 33. The nation left Sinai, the verse tells us. They left Sinai. And the Midrash tells us that they left Sinai gleefully like children escaping from school you know, now it's the end of the school year and uh, my kids are very, very excited as I'm sure yours are to finally be liberated from school. They're children. That's what they're supposed to do. It's summer. They want to go to camp. They don't want to wake up early and have to go listen to someone lecture, pontificate for a few hours. I know that every hour, almost every minute, Of elementary school was painful for me, so it's natural for kids to want to escape. My daughter has a big board that she hung up a few weeks ago, and she made a bunch of squares, and every square corresponds to one day. Then she etches off every day she gets home from school, and she made a huge celebration to knock off one more day of school, and finally it's freedom. It's very elaborate, lots of art. Kids want to escape from school, says the Talmud, when the nation. Left Sinai, they too felt like they were liberated. They were there for all year, nonstop study. You couldn't even have an excuse. Oh, I'm going to make food. No, no, no. The food delivered to your door. You have the manna. All you did was study. And the nation was delighted, relieved to finally escape. And that's a catastrophe. And that's catastrophe number one. And then in chapter 11, verse one, the nation begins to complain. They're bickering. They're quetching. The Torah did not want to have these two episodes next to each other. To have the nation leaving Sinai like children gleefully escaping school, followed immediately by them complaining, it's not a good look. And therefore, the Torah, the Almighty, He takes these two verses that really belong elsewhere, copy, paste, and places them over here. But to tell us that really it's out of place, he added two backwards-facing nuns on either side of these two verses. The Almighty artificially, this is what the Talmud's telling us, artificially disrupted the flow of events. And he interjected with a different section, and to mark that this section really belongs elsewhere, the Torah has these two nuns, so to speak, bracketing that section away. Concludes the Talmud in the future. Rashi tells us, what does that mean? When the Yetzirah is destroyed, and there's no more a concern of punishment, those two sections Will be restored back to chapter two of Numbers to their correct place. This is what the Talmud tells us. Fascinating. We have these two, again, a very unusual feature of our parsha, two nuns facing the wrong direction. And that's because it's at a place and it's there to interject between the two punishments. And in the future, it's going to be restored back to its original place. Now I will note If you're not happy with the layout of the Torah, you cannot do any editing yourself. This is the way Moshe wrote the Torah scroll 3,300 plus years ago. The Talmud tells us that the Almighty intervened, but this is the first reason why we have these nuns. The Talmud offers a second reason, which is that these two verses that are separated by these backward-facing nuns are really a book of their own. You think there are five books of the Torah? No, there are seven. There's Genesis, and there's Exodus, and there's Leviticus, and then you have at the end Devarim, Deuteronomy, and the book of Numbers is really three books before the nun, the backwards-facing nun, after the backwards-facing nun, and you have two verses, the verses that describe what Moshe said when the nation began to travel, and when they settle down in their new location, those two verses are their own book. You can read it in a minute, in 12 seconds, a whole book in the Torah. This is a fascinating teaching in the Talmud. If you just saw a Torah scroll, and you notice this feature, it's so unusual. And both of the ideas offered in the Talmud are super interesting either that it was interjected here to break the succession of blunders of the nation or because they serve as divisions for the next book of the Torah. Now, what's not so clear is, okay, according to both opinions, why is it the letter Nun? It could be any letter. Maybe it doesn't even need to be a letter. Maybe it could be some sort of dash, parentheses, why are the nuns also backwards facing? These questions are not addressed by the Talmud. They are, however, discussed by the commentators. The Balaturim, very nice piece. He says that if you count the letters of the twelve tribes, so you add the word Ruven. It's five five letters. To the word Ruven, resh, aleph, vav, vez, and nun and then five letters for Shimon, and then three letters for Levi, just tally all 12 tribes up, you have 50 letters. And the Nun in the Gematria system is 50. Oh, and the Jordan that they want to traverse, the Jordan River, it's 50 cubits wide. And this is to symbolize that the nation comprised of 50 was going to cross the Jordan comprised of 50. Very interesting. Another idea that he brings is that if you count, listen to this, you count the amount of paragraphs between where this section is and where it should have been in chapter 2, verse 17 of Numbers, just count the amount of paragraphs. It's 50 paragraphs earlier. The correct location for these two verses is 50 paragraphs earlier. And therefore, the letter Nun, which corresponds to the number 50, that's why it's the letter Nun. Oh, and if you just had the letter Nun, you would think it's 50 to the future, 50 paragraphs ahead. And therefore, it's backwards facing to tell you that, no, it's 50 paragraphs earlier, not 50 paragraphs later. Now, there are other commentators here as well. I, I won't tell you about this. I'll encourage you to read it. It's a very long piece. There's a very, very cabalistic comment by Rabbeinu Bechaya, very advanced. It is a subject, I will tell you, that we did speak about in the past, but he weaves it all together very beautifully. The Maharsha tells us that the letter Nun always symbolizes downfall. The word no-fell means to fall, and it starts with the letter Nun. And therefore, if we're talking about these blunders, these mistakes that the nation made, you put a letter Nun, and it's facing backwards to reverse the fall. Oh, and according to Second Opinion, that tells us that it's a standalone book. We know that the Torah is the Almighty's wisdom, and the Almighty's wisdom has 50 gates of insight. And even these two verses, these two verses, that comprise a whole book, There are also in this very short book, again, according to the opinion of the Talmud, that the reason why these verses are cordoned off from the rest of the book, is because they're their own book. This other book, comprised of only two verses, also contains 50 levels of insight. And the 50th level is above everyone. It's the level of God. Even Moshe only understood up to level 49 Fascinating stuff, and and there's a lot more on this topic, but it's very fascinating. And today, I want to suggest perhaps a novel idea about the inverted nuns. But before we propose the idea, let us look at some of the other things that happened surrounding this maiden voyage of the nation from Sinai so if you look chapter 10 verse 29 all the way through, uh, through 32 you'll see a very a very strange exchange between moshe and his father-in-law of course moshe's father-in-law jethro appears many times in the torah in in the beginning of the book of exodus moshe marries his daughter and then he joins the nation he appears a few times in the torah and now, before the nation leaves Mount Sinai, Moshe tries to persuade Jethro to join the nation in their journey. He tells them, We're going to the land of Israel. Again, they are under the impression that the conquest of Canaan is imminent. Come join us, Moshe tells Jethro, and we'll do good to you. Moshe gives you an invitation. It's an offer you can't refuse. Or is it? What does Jethro respond? No. If you're a son-in-law, even if you're really powerful and influential and prestigious like Moshe, the father-in-law can still tell you no, evidently. No, says Jethro. I'm going to go back to my land. I'm going to go back to my homeland. Well, it seems like The subject is settled. But Moshe does not take no for an answer. He says to him, don't leave us. You will be for us as eyes. And when you come with us, we'll do good to you. And whatever God does good for us, we will extend that goodness for you. So we have four verses here, this extended conversation between Moshe And Jethro, Moshe says, come. He says, no. He says, please, come. You'll be an ice for us and we'll do good for you. And that's where the dialogue ends. The Torah does not tell us what happened to Jethro. But when we explore Jethro's story from other sources, we discover that he actually did not accede to Moshe's request. And he left. He went home. It's a fascinating thing. Moshe really wants Jethro to join. Jethro says no, and Moshe persists. Why? Why is Moshe so insistent that Jethro remain with the people? Not everyone has an adversarial relationship with their in-laws, but when he tries to get him to stay, Jethro demurs, and Moshe follows up. Moshe seems very committed, very determined to have Jethro remain with the nation. Why is it so important? Moreover, Moshe tells Jethro, you will be for us the eyes. You'll serve as eyes for us. So what does that mean? Rashi offers a whole bevy, a plethora of explanations. You will enlighten us. You'll be precious to us. Still, it's a very interesting use of term. Moshe is deeply invested in Jethro's stained, and when Jethro objects, Moshe pushes his case. You know, typically we're told that you're not supposed to push your case too hard. We, We don't run red lights to make the flight. When you see pushback on your plan, it may be the Almighty telling you, well, maybe try something else. Yet Moshe persists, he pushes his case. Why is it so important that Jethro join? And why is Moshe labeling Jethro as the eyes of the people? Now, ultimately, Jethro does leave, and the nation leaves Sinai. And they leave gleefully like children escaping school. And then we have the section with the two backwards-facing nuns, and chapter 11 begins, and the nation is experiencing spiritual bankruptcy. All hell breaks loose. They start complaining, we're going too fast. Uh, They're they're like looking for something to complain about. And then a fire consumes some at the edge of the camp. And then verse 4, they complain for meat. They're craving the meat. They remember the fish. And we remember the meat. And what about the watermelon? What about the garlic and the onions and the cucumbers that we used to eat in Egypt? And now we're so sick and tired of the manna. They've been eating manna for a whole year. And no one's complaining. And now they leave. Chapter 11 begins spiritual bankruptcy and they start to complain and to quetch and to be nostalgic for Egypt. And we used to have all this meat and all this fish and the cucumbers. They're lamenting the Exodus. They're regretting the Exodus. We remember all the delectable food in Egypt. And these foods, in particular, Russia tells us the manna was a magical food. It would take on the flavor of whatever food you imagined, except for these five foods. These five flavors you cannot pour over to the manna. And the nation starts complaining. And it's kind of jaw-dropping. The nation was enslaved in Egypt. They were tormented and oppressed and suffered Unimaginable torture. And now they have manna. It's a very wonderful and convenient food. But they don't have the the flavor of the onion and the garlic and the cucumber and the watermelon and the leeks. And that's enough for them to say, "Ah, we look back, I remember Egypt, I want to salivate over the food we used to have there. It's it's kind of strange. This, this great nation, they just leave Sinai and right away they start to crave Egypt. And we know things were not rosy in Egypt. They were enslaved. They suffered infanticide, oppressive labor, servitude. Why is not having a little bit of flavor, why is that sufficient to make them eager to maybe even go back to Egypt? Now you do recall that in Egypt, 80% of the nation didn't make it out. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to remain in Egypt. And the people that did leave, they are the 20%. They are the ones that chose to leave. But nevertheless, right after the first trip from Sinai, the trouble begins. They have some slight hardship. It's not pleasant to have all this travel. And that triggers these fond memories of, of, of Egypt. And they start to think about all the food. What is going on over here? Now, what happens next is also quite perplexing. God gets angry. Moshe is disappointed. He hears them crying. He's not happy. And he makes an astonishing statement. He tells God, why did you do bad to me? Why did I not find favor in your eyes? You want me to take this whole nation and take care of them? Did I conceive this nation? Did I give birth to this nation? Am I like a parent, like a mother to this nation? They all want meat. How am I supposed to deliver meat for this whole nation? I cannot bear the weight of this nation myself. I can't do it. You want me to be the sole leader of the people? I can't. So if they're going to remain the way they are, and it's just me over here, just kill me, Moshe says. Unbelievable verse. If you're insisting on doing this to me, just kill me. The nation leaves Sinai and things devolve very rapidly. And Moshe effectively resigns. It's too much for him to handle. The nation's complaining, asking for me, and Moshe's done. This is a stunning development. Moshe has reached his breaking point. The humblest of men, the most patient of men, the most empathetic of men, he's done with the nation. And he tells God, either you give me a backup or you kill me. I can no longer do this on my own. And it's not so clear what exactly Moshe is saying here. Like Why is this the event that's triggering Moshe? Why is this the, the straw that broke the camel's back? You know, Moshe had to navigate very tricky situations in the past. Oh, uh, uh, Egypt's coming. Are there insufficient graves in Egypt? He brought us here to die, Moshe. Oh, in Mara, there's no water. Everyone's complaining. The golden calf, of course. Only now, Moshe gives up in exasperation. Only this is an unconquerable challenge. The request for meat, that's what sends Moshe over the edge. This is what push pushes Moshe past the limit. Everything else he takes in stride. He's so committed to this nation. He's willing to suffer on behalf of the nation. But they crave the meat of Egypt. They want the watermelons and the onions. And this is a bridge too far. It's not so clear why Moshe is so disturbed by this. But God accepts Moshe's request. And Gathas Moshe go select 70 elders who served as the overseers in Egypt. This is the establishment of the high court, of the supreme court, of the Sanhedrin. It has 71 members, 70 elders plus Moshe. And this body existed in one way or another for 1,700 years. And the verse tells us that God tells Moshe, okay, go appoint 70 elders. And the qualifications of these elders, Rashi tells us, they have to be the overseers in Egypt. In Egypt, the Egyptians had a tremendous quota that they expected from the Jewish slaves. And they used certain Jews as intermediaries between them and the slaves. And if a slave, a Jewish slave, did not produce on a given day the quota, the expected quota, then it would be the responsibility of the Jewish overseer to make sure that things are what they're supposed to be. And there were a group of overseers in Egypt that suffered on behalf of the slaves. And they would... Get beaten by the Egyptians on behalf of the nation. Those people who were beaten to protect the Jews, the pitiful slaves, those are the people who you have to select, Moshe, to be part of this great body, the Sanhedrin. So it's very interesting. The leadership structure of the nation is changing. Moshe says, I can't lead them myself. If you want to keep it like this, you have to kill me. And God says, okay, let's take you, seven, the elders. And what are the qualifications? I would say, well, they have to be very intelligent, sharp, elders, elder state, statesmen, judges. You know, it's very nice when someone is beaten physically beaten, on behalf of their constituents, it's a very laudable thing. It's a very admirable thing. It's very pious. But if you think about it, to be a leader, it's a different skill set. Yet the prerequisites to be a member of the Sanhedrin is to be one of the Jewish overseers Who gets beaten on behalf of the nation? It's also not clear how this is going to solve Moshe's problem. The nation is a petulant bunch, and they're craving all the delicacies of Egypt. Okay, here are seven the elders. How is that going to fundamentally address the problem? Now, it's interesting. If you just look at these events that happen in rapid fire succession, you'll notice that before the journey, Jethro leaves. Moshe wants him to stay and Jethro leaves. And after the journey, there's a rapid breakdown of the nation. And Moshe is instructed to appoint a Sanhedrin. They lose Jethro much to Moshe's consternation and chagrin. And they have a rapid, spiraling devolvement. And Moshe says, I'm resigning. And the Sanhedrin is appointed. But here's where things get very interesting. Listen to this. Moshe tells Jethro, come join us. He says, no, sorry, I'm not joining. And Moshe persists. We want you to come with us. You'll be our eyes. Moshe is trying to sweeten the deal. It'll be our eyes. Now, this doesn't clinch the deal, and Jethro leaves. But Moshe wanted Jethro to stay and to serve a very specific role, to be the eyes of the nation. What that means, we don't know. But Jethro was designated to be the eyes of the nation. Now listen to this. Jethro leaves. And things just all fall apart. And Moshe gives up. And then he appoints a council of 70 elders. He appoints the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, we're told, later on in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 24, they are called the eyes of the nation. Isn't that interesting? Jethro, stay with us. You'll be the eyes of the people. He leaves and things really go poorly. And Moshe resigns. And God says, okay, I'll give you backup. I'll give you eyes of the people. This cannot be a coincidence. Moshe is desperate to have Jethro remain with the nation. And Jethro initially rebuffs his first plea. And he tells him, well, you'll, you'll serve the vital role of being the eyes of the people. And he still is not interested for whatever reason. And when Jethro, the eyes of the people, leaves, disaster strikes. And Moshe says, I cannot do it alone. God responds, appoint 70 the elders. These slave overseers in Egypt who were struck by the Egyptians on behalf of the nation, they're going to stabilize the nation. You lost Jethro, the would be eyes of the nation, in his stead, appoint the 70 elders, they will be the eyes of the nation. A fascinating symmetry in the story. Of course, this raises another question What does it mean to be the eyes of the nation? And how exactly do both Jethro and this council of 70 elders? former slave overseers in Egypt, the Sanhedrin, how do they qualify? I want to suggest an approach. The nation spent years, decades, centuries in Egypt. And it was very unpleasant. And it went from okay to less than okay to bad to downright awful. And they were saved and there were miracles in the Exodus. The templates. It's time to go. 80% stayed behind. 80% could not muster up the courage to leave. They were too entangled in Egypt to leave. Only 20% made it out. These were the people with a very strong Jewish identity. They remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this whole dream of being an independent nation and going back to the land and fulfilling the Abrahamic destiny. These 20%, they retained the ember of Abraham, and they were worthy of redemption. And they left. And God manipulated the Egyptians to follow in hot pursuit. And There's the standoff at the sea, and the sea splits, and the nation walks in dry land amidst the seawall. The Egyptians are defeated both in Egypt and now at the sea, and the nation travels to Sinai, and they're in manna, drinking water from Iraq. Things are swell. And then they have the Sinai Revelation, this event that changes all of human history. And it seems like they have placed sufficient distance between their current selves and their former selves. There's no longer any connection between these people and Egypt. They have removed, eviscerated, evicted any association that they had previously harbored to Egypt from within them. They're in the clear. The enemy has been defeated. And you know what? They spend an entire year at Sinai, and all seems well. And Jethro joins. Jethro has an interesting background. He used to be a high official of of Pharaoh. He was part of Pharaoh's council. And when Pharaoh proposed the policy of Jewish genocide, Jethro objected, and he opposed this plan. And as a result, he had to flee, and he went to Midian but he was Egyptian by birth and background. And when he heard about the downfall of Egypt, Rashi tells us in chapter 18 of Exodus, he suffered some goosebumps of sadness. He still had some association with Egypt, but now he's with the nation. And the nation leaves Sinai and all manner of problems surfaced. And the most unexplainable, inexplicable one the most egregious is that they began to long for Egypt. We remember those juicy watermelons and the leeks and the onions of Egypt. They begin to have this inexplicable nostalgia for Egypt. What's going on up here? I thought we left Egypt behind. There's a major principle here. When you change, when you abandon a bad situation, when you overcome a difficult challenge, and you're successful, you defeat your enemy, you defeat the Eight Sahara, you're good, right? If you have a conflict with an enemy, and then you defeat it, well, The enemy's gone, right? Right? That's how it works typically. The Sahara, and the Rambam tells us, by the way, just as an aside, we mentioned this in the past, that Egypt is symbolic of the Yitzhahara. So long as you are alive, this is a foe that you have to be aware of. And even if... You've defeated the enemy, and you've won. You've routed your opponents. The eight Sahara goes back to the drawing board and tries to make another incursion, tries to seek to re-enter, always looking for some vulnerability, some opening, some little chink in your armor to come back and bite you. When you defeat the enemy, this grand enemy the enemy of our life, the formidable foe of our lives. That does not allow you to rest on your laurels and get complacent and lose your vigilance. You must maintain vigilance and continuously keep the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the enemy suppressed, or else it will surface. And pose a new danger. And specifically when you are in a transition space, you know, when they're at Sinai, things were fine. But whenever they leave Sinai, whenever you're in a transition space, whenever you're in an unsettled state, that's always a point of vulnerability. The Midrash tells us that the Sahara sits at a crossroads when you're traveling, you're more exposed. You're more vulnerable, and you perhaps can be attacked. That opening can be exploited by the Etsahara, and that enemy that you defeated can rise again to threaten you. And we we'll see what happened. They leave Sinai, and immediately they're vulnerable, and they start to complain. And where's the meat? And where's the onions? At Sinai, they became a cherished nation. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And now they're, they're craving the legendary, memorable Egyptian cuisine. That association they had with Egypt that they thought they defeated. Somehow it resurfaced. Somehow it reared its ugly head. How would you prepare for this? We have a principle. You defeat the Eitzahara, you overcome a nefarious foe, you have to maintain your vigilance and make sure that the foe that you defeated does not resurface. How would you do that? How would you protect against that? How could you shield yourself, especially when you're mobile, you're in a transition phase, how would you shield yourself against this very potentially fatal danger? How do you make sure that the enemy does not resurface? The only way to do it is to continue the battle after it's done. You overcame Egypt. You defeated it. You defeated it multiple times in Egypt, outside of Egypt. You got to continue to defeat it. And the way you do that is that even when the threat's not there, you made sure that you know and you remember why you were part of that 20%, not the 80%. Why you made that courageous decision in the first place. And they had a tremendous asset in that effort. They had Jethro. Who was Jethro? Jethro was a minister of Pharaoh. If anyone abandoned Egypt, if anyone saw through the folly and the evil of Egypt... If there's anyone who's willing to give up the wealth, the prestige, the power, the stature, the status of Egypt, it was Jethro. And the promotion is very interested, very desirous of having Jethro remain. He's going to serve as a great aid for the people, especially when they're about to travel. Because look at him. He used to work for Pharaoh. He was Mr. Egypt. And if he wants to be with us... He'd rather be here with us than with the aristocracy of Egypt. He could serve as a security blanket. His presence in the camp will stamp out any unwarranted, inappropriate Egyptian nostalgia. Moshe says, we'd like you to join. And he initially refuses. So Moshe follows up and says, you'll be the eyes of the nation. You'll help the nation see clearly. You'll help them remember why we left in the first place. The most potent weapon of the Yitzhahara is to only show us the good parts of bad situations, not the bad parts. The Yitzhahara, when it crafts a picture for us of what we really should avoid It only highlights the benefits of sin and not the more unseemly elements. The loss, what we're going to lose, what we're going to forfeit if we adhere to its advice. How many people lost everything? Their family, their, their job, their standing, their reputation, because of a silly mistake a stupid mistake that they made. These are intelligent people, capable people, and they give up everything for what? The family, their children, everything for what? How can someone make that decision? The only way they could do it is if at the time of that decision, they only saw the positive of what they're about to do, not the negative. That is the weaponry of the evil inclination. It makes you see only the positive, only the excitement and the enticement of what it is offering you. It doesn't show you what you're going to have to forfeit. The are distorts people's vision. It shows them a doctored picture. It makes sin and, and succumbing to temptation appear to be just, wow, so exciting. And avoiding that, Doesn't seem like a good idea. And all the negative inherent in that is ignored, is not present. The Yetzirah can make you want and crave Egypt. Think about that. A place where they murdered babies and enslaved people from morning to night and unleashed all manner of cruelty and torture upon the nation. And the Eight Sahara can get a person to say, Oh, I remember it was so amazing. Egypt, the worst of times, can be made to appear as the good old days. How do you fight against this enemy? You have to have some sort of countervailing force to show them. Actually, no, that's just a, that's only part of the picture. Yes, you had something there that you don't have now. You had the onions and the garlic. But it was actually the bad old days. Jethro would serve as the eyes to show them the full picture. He would enlighten the nation to show them the other side. He he saw through it. He saw the evil and the destruction. Why did he leave? He left because of what they did to this nation. Jethro's presence would balance things out and Jethro leaves and the nation lapses into nostalgia for Egypt. A very powerful idea here. Even after you leave Egypt, you made a courageous decision, you're part of the 20%. It will resurface as something exciting. And the only way to avoid that is if you have some eyes, the eyes of the people. Listen, in Sinai, it was a cocooned environment, studying Torah with Moshe every day. And Egypt is, it's not really much of a threat. When they're stationary, it's not as big of a threat. But once they leave, and Jethro leaves as well, They don't have eyes. They don't see things clearly. He leaves and disaster strikes. And the nation says, we remember. We recall. We can just see it. Those dripping garlics and those cucumbers. We miss the meat of Egypt. And Moshe says, I can't do this. I can't do this alone. I need some help. Specifically, I need someone with the qualities that can provide vision for the nation, can show them the other side. Is there any way to eliminate the mystique, the appeal, the seduction of Egypt? Is there anyone here who could show us, who could remind us, who could serve as a visual, as an image of how bad things were in Egypt? God says, okay, appoint 70 elders. And what are their qualifications? Are they great sages, very talented, very charismatic, very intelligent? That's not what it says. I want people that were beaten by the Egyptians. The people that physically bear the scars of the evil of Egypt. Those are the people that I want. Those people, they will serve the role that you wanted Jethro to do. They will be our eyes. They will help balance out our evaluation of Egypt. And remember, yes, yes, there were watermelons there. And you had some foods and flavors that you don't have now. But that's only one side. And if you only have one side, one side of the picture, even Egypt can be exciting and appealing and desirous. To balance it out, you have to have clear vision. If we don't have Jethro, let's have these elders covered in scars, withered, beaten by their experience in Egypt, their leaders. And if everyone sees them, that will stamp out the appeal, the drive the excitement to go back to Egypt. Jethro, Moshe wanted him to stay because he would fulfill a very vital role to help the nations see the other side, to counteract the fiction that the Eight spins, that Egypt was a place where we sat down and ate meat and munched on watermelons. In the middle of this, we have the backwards-facing nuns. And the nun, we're told, it symbolizes falling, faltering. What do you do to avoid faltering? You have to look back. And look back with both eyes. And recall the devastation of your previous self. If you don't do that, you are at a risk that you will fall. You are at a risk that you will lapse into your previous pattern of behavior. The Yetzirah is not our friend. He distorts our perception. And he could take the experience of Egypt and distill it and crystallize it into a place where we ate meat that were flavored with onions and garlic and we had some nice vegetables on the side, some cucumbers, and when we're done, we had a nice dessert of watermelon. That is the Egypt that the Yetzirah presents for us. You can look back at Egypt with that distortion and, and be desirous of it and look back at it fondly even when it was objectively bad. Now, the Talmud tells us Eventually, when the Eitzra is defeated, this story could be changed. This passages, these passages in in the Torah can be restored back to their previous place because we'll no longer need the lessons of the backwards facing nuns. I think there's a lot of very important lessons for us here. Our nation in our parsha craved Egypt. Pharaoh Egypt, we're told, is symbolic of all the challenges that we have with the Sahara. And we learned a lesson. When you overcome something, you defeat it, your job's not over. You have to prevent it from bubbling to the surface again. And the Sahara has a superpower, and its superpower is to not allow you to see things clearly, to blind you to the reality, to make you nostalgic for what you left, even if it was objectively bad. People go back to their abusive etches. Why? You suffered so much. Why why are you going back? People make mistakes and, and they go back to it. They feel terrible afterwards. They go back. Why? People look at the bad old days and they can conjure fond memories. Why? People could leave a bad situation and have buyer's remorse and wish that they were back there. It's because of the reality distortion field of the Eight You don't have eyes, you don't see things clearly. If you want to avoid this problem, you have to have some reminder, some artifact of why you made the decision in the first place. Have some reminder that it wasn't so rosy. If you don't have that, there's a risk of spiritual bankruptcy of Chapter 11 where you lapse back into the harmful behavior, the harmful destructive behavior that you worked so hard to distance yourself from. It's well known that when a student makes a decision to go join the yeshiva, especially someone that doesn't have that background, that didn't grow up with yeshiva. And they make a courageous decision to leave the insanity of the world and to go cocoon themselves in a veritable Sinai, in the yeshiva, and to immerse themselves in study, and to change themselves. That, in effect, is a, v- a version of an exodus. The world... And all of its problems are just abandoned. And you go into the yeshiva, and you're like a reenactment of Sinai. You're studying Torah, you're developing your midos, your character, you're developing your relationship with the Almighty. It's an incredible thing. When they leave yeshiva, inevitably, there's a risk of them saying, I actually miss those onions, garlic, watermelons. There's a real risk. And the way to avoid that, or a tactic to avoid that, is to remember why you did it in the first place. Long-time listeners know that I don't really use social media, but I always had a weakness for Twitter. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but it's true. So many different ideas. It's like a place for, for new ideas. And you have a, you have a feed and all these different accounts could give you all these very interesting ideas. So I, it was a weakness. And I know it's a waste of time and it's not productive. It's not helpful. But even if I would quit, I would quit. I would go back to it a little bit, you know, check it out. What's going on? What did I miss? So I'll tell you what happened. I actually made a a small investment based upon something that I saw on Twitter. And it it went catastrophically bad. Lost some money. Okay, not the end of the world. But now I've been off this website for a lot of time and I'm very proud of myself. And even when I have this, I feel like, like an urge to go back. I have to say, I'm, I'm admitting to you, I know this is at the end of the podcast. Most of y'all already stopped listening a long time ago. But this idea, this lesson, this is what I tried to do. Every time I feel like an, an urge to, to, to restart my account and to put it on my phone and to always have something interesting to read, I remember what I lost. I remember that investment that I made that went poorly. And I say, okay, that's a good reminder. That That's my eyes. That's the eyes of Jethro. To remind you, it's not all rosy. If you have those receipts, keep those receipts. Remember why you did what you did. And that will help you to ensure that when Pharaoh somehow begins to bubble within you and Egypt and the nostalgia – awakens within you, you'll have the armor and the ammunition to suppress those thoughts. Okay, we'd like to end the Parsha podcast with a question. I know we're a bit time overtime here, so I apologize. I have to find a way to do these a little shorter. Should we do like a part one or part two? I don't know. Listen to this question. In our Parsha, we have the idea of the Make-up date. The make-up date. A second opportunity. If you missed Pesach, you were impure, you couldn't bring the Paschal offering. You have a rain date, a rain check. You can make it up the month later. There were people who came to Moshe and they said, well, why should we lose out? We were impure. And we missed the Paschal offering of our Parsha. Why should we lose out? And Moshe goes to God and God says, these people are right. They'll have a second chance. Now, the Talmud is a very interesting discussion as to who these people were. Who were these people who went to Moshe and said, well, we were impure. Why were people impure? And why would they go to Moshe? So the Talmud tells us, very interesting, three different opinions as to who these people were. Either they were the ones who were bearing the coffin of Joseph. you know Joseph, the nation took their bones of Joseph with them back to Canaan, and there were people who were responsible for carrying the coffin of Joseph. That's one opinion they're they're carrying the coffin of Joseph; they're impure; they can't make the Pesach offering. The second opinion tells us that it was the cousins of Nadav and Avihu who who died on the first day of Nisan. They died. They brought the improper, unauthorized sacrifice, and they went to bury Nadav and Avihu, and because they carried the, the bones of Nadav and Avihu, they were impure. Pesach came around, and they were impure. They came to Moshe, and they got the opportunity to do it a month later. The third opinion in the Talmud is that these were people whose names we don't know, but who did a mitzvah of burying a dead that no one knew who they were. That's the halacha of the mes mitzvah of the unattended corpse. So it's interesting. The Talmud offers three different opinions as to who these people were, who were impure. Now, incidentally, the Talmud questions some of these opinions. Wait wait a minute. The people that were carrying the bones of Joseph, why couldn't they become pure before Pesach? Pesach and Mishal and Elsa von the, the cousins of Radav Raviyu, who buried them while well, they died on the first day of Nisan, you have two weeks to become pure. All you need is a week. It's an interesting question. And there's a very beautiful essay. I don't want to go through it, even though I had it in my notes here to talk about it. In the book of Sukkah, on page 25B, there's a beautiful essay from the benishchai, as to what happened with these people and why they were still impure when Pesach came around. But here's the question I want to ponder. The Torah tells us that some people who were impure came to Moshe and said, why should we lose out? Why should we lose that? We should lose the opportunity to do this mitzvah, the pastoral offering. We want a second chance, a second crack at it. And the Talmud says, Well, who were these people? Either they're the ones who were carrying the bones of Joseph, or the cousins of one of you who were burying them, or someone who buried a base mitzvah, who buried an unattended corpse. Three answers that the Talmud offers. All of those three were doing a great mitzvah. The Talmud could have said, Well, who was it? It was some random person who touched a dead body. It was a random person who was in the room, in a tent, in an enclosure, at the same time as a dead body. Like, why is the Talmud trying to figure out who it was? And it offers three different answers. Why can it be? Well, there's, there's loads of people who are always becoming impure. Why does the Talmud have to find people that were doing a mitzvah And became impure as a result, and they were the ones who came to Moshe with this question: why should we lose out? Evidently, the only kinds of people that would qualify to fit into this story are people that were impure due to a mitzvah. And the question is, why? And there are some answers very quickly. There's an idea that if some of those one mitzvah, they are impelled. They feel an urge to do a second mitzvah. And thus, perhaps you can say from the fact that they were so desirous of doing the pastoral offering, it must be that the only reason why they were impure was due to a mitzvah. Alternatively, these people come to motion and say, well, why should we lose out? Why should we lose out? You should lose out because you're impure. Life's not fair. If they were doing a mitzvah that made them impure, There's no way you can lose out from doing a mitzvah. And that's the only way to fulfill, the only way to understand the narrative, the exchange, the dialogue, the emotion, these unnamed people who were impure. The only way to understand it is if they were doing a mitzvah and that made them impure. Because otherwise, their claim, why should we lose out, is not valid. Only If someone is doing a mitzvah, can they claim that they will not lose out? I appreciate your attention. I know we went a little bit over time, a little bit longer than we typically do, and I apologize for that. But I appreciate your time and your attention and your listenership. It's a delight to be speaking to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Our website is torchweb.org. If you want to send me an email with any questions or comments or feedback, my email address is com. Have an incredible day. Have a splendid rest of your week. Have a sensational, uplifting, thrilling Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week on the Parsha Podcast.